Welcome to Money Tips by Charles Kelly, author of Yes, Money Can Buy You Happiness. Charles spent over 25 years in financial services, working for banks, insurance companies, and as a qualified independent financial advisor running his practice before setting up his speaking, consultancy, and property business. Money Tips will help you save, make, and accumulate more money, whether you are a business owner, entrepreneur, employee, or still searching for your vocation. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Charles Kelly again with you for Money Tips podcast. Today, I've got a very special guest who's Josh Saul, the founder and CEO of the Pure Gold Company. Now, Josh was previously an analyst researching markets and opportunities in the city for large investment houses, and he first became interested in precious metals. Now, he often appears on as a well-informed commentator on such channels as, uh, and he talks about gold and silver and, and buying in bullion or buying in coins, but he's appeared on CNBC, BBC, and a host of other uh, newspapers and podcasts and on, on YouTube. And he's got quite a large following in this. And I became interested in Josh because I think he gives uh, a good overview of gold and silver. Uh, he gives an impartial view of, of things as well. He's not just saying, well, you can only invest in gold and silver. I've used the company actually myself, and I found that they've, they've got a very good system where you can actually talk to somebody, talk to a human being about what you want to do. Uh, so Josh has a company called the Pure Gold Company. It provides a really good service to people um, on precious metals, gold and silver. They've got storage facilities as well. They've got 15 years experience in the market. And he clearly understands the importance of uh, personalization when it comes to investment decisions. So I'll, I'll hand over to Josh in a second. But welcome, Josh. Welcome to the, the podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Charles. Great. And a lot of our uh, viewers and listeners are quite interested in what's going on with gold because you hear a lot about gold. There's a lot of stuff going on in the market. You hear, you know, we've got high inflation. We've got, you know, governments in debts and and the dollar and, and this sort of thing. And you hear about all these things and and nations, you know, buying a lot of gold, central banks. But in, in your opinion, what is this thing about gold? Why is it there's such a buzz about gold at the moment? And why, why should we be looking at gold as part of our investment portfolio? Well, I, I was on Bloomberg last week and wow. I was asked by a journalist the yeah. exact question. And in fact, the question keeps on coming up. Yeah. You know, in the face of so much uncertainty and volatility and unpredictability, what do we do with our wealth? You know, what do we do with our investments? Do we act? Do we react? Do we do we be proactive? And it's it's a really good question because in the 15 years I've been doing this, um, I've never seen as many people, as many well-talented and skilled people ask the very same question. And there's no real one answer. Um, but since you ask, um, it's worth, it's, you know, it's certainly worth talking about how I answered that because um, it was a, it was a, it was a live segment on, on Bloomberg. And so, you know, I went on to explain, you know, how the wealthy, the smart money, the professionals protect, preserve, um, and, and grow wealth during times of uncertainty without paying any tax whatsoever. Um, so it's normally it's normally at the point in which I mention tax or HMRC that I tend to get people's attention. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my screen um, so you can see um, some slides that I've presented. It just provides a little bit of a a visual cue um, to prop me in terms of what I'm what I'm talking about. 
great. I can see that. And understand there's been quite record demand in, in 2023. So uh, you seem to we, be very busy. Well, yeah, we've seen a 93% increase in um, gold demand this 90%. year compared to the last year. And that's that's been reflected um, across central banks as well. We saw 1,183 tonnes purchased through central banks all over the world last year, which was the single largest amount of gold that we've seen purchased in any year since records began. Um, so there's clearly good reason for doing it. Um, and I guess my goal right now is to explain, you know, why you would do it, why you wouldn't do it, and I guess the alternatives to physical gold, because it's it's impossible to look at anything in isolation. You shouldn't yeah. do because everything's relative. Um, and, um, you know, I aim to talk about equities and property and cryptocurrency, um, bonds, um, leaving your money in the bank. Um, I'll go into enough detail to whet people's appetite. Um, right. And then I'll, I'll, I'll provide some information in terms of being able to find out more. Um, if 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 your clients or the people that follow you have that inclination. That's great. So a little bit about me um, before I start. Can you see what I'm saying? Can you see my screen? Yeah, so 15 years in the precious metals investment market. Perfect. So this is me. Um, it is true. I have, um, I guess, more than 15 years of experience within the precious metals market. Um, I, I started my career in, in the legal world. Um, I trained as a solicitor um, in the banking and capital markets. I then moved on to become an analyst at a company called FTI Consulting. Um, and my role there was to analyze companies, sectors and markets relative to one another. It's quite interesting. We would sell on research to the likes of KPMG, and then KPMG would then sell that into the likes of the Financial Times as their own research. Okay, um, and that's that's what gave me not only a, you know a close proximity to physical gold as an asset class, but the firm I was working for was responsible for handling the collapse of Lehman Brothers and General Motors. So on the one hand, I got to see the nuances of financial ruin, but I also got to see the trend and the correlation between how assets reacted to that, in particular physical gold. Okay. And so that took me further into um, physical gold um, as a career and as an asset class, and I kind of delved further into granular detail in terms of how gold could protect people during times of uncertainty and also provide insurance during times, um, you know, when, when, when things are, are good. And so I set up the Pure Gold Company um, and I, I set this up in, in 2012. And we, we specialize in providing physical gold, physical silver, um, coins or bars by delivery or storage, we're fortunate enough to have a really good reputation. And, and the reason for that is we're one of the only companies that apply a consultative approach when talking to our clients. And what that means is we get to, not only do we talk to every one of our clients, but we get to understand why they're doing what they're doing. So we get to understand the motivations for why they want to do what they're doing. Yeah. We give guidance in terms of why they should do it, why they shouldn't do it, how to do it, when to do it. 
So there'll, there'll, there'll be times where we would suggest to kind of consider waiting to make a purchase if we believed that there was an opportunity in the gold price um, via waiting. And also quite the converse. You know, if we, if we think more can be gained by, by acting sooner, both in terms of removing exposure and also picking up price gains, then we may well suggest, you know, to move sooner. And so with, with a lot of that information that we acquire from clients in terms of, you know, underlying motivations for why they purchase, we have real qualitative, colorful data that we provide back to the press. Um, clearly, you know, in a very private, anonymous way, um, but we're able to give those trends, you know, as they're happening, as opposed to once they've happened. Um, and so we've been featured on the likes of CNBC, um, Money Week, BBC. We were on GMDV a few weeks ago. And as I said before, I was on Bloomberg um, last week. Um, and so I'm very proud of the reputation that we've earned over you know, the years that we've, we've been in business. Mm. So going back to the question that I probably confused everyone with when we first started this conversation, you know, what you know in the face of so much uncertainty volatility fear what does one do with with their wealth um as i said before it's a commonly asked question not just from the media not just from the banks not just from the the smart money or the ultra high net worth individuals but i would say that most of the people that we speak to at the moment however financially savvy they are this is the question they tend to ask so it's the question that i think is worth answering and I, I get it. You know, we've the UK has had an embarrassment of riches, you know, from having five prime ministers in a really short period of time to seeing, you know, record high inflation um, relative to um, to to earnings. Um, and then, of course, the potential for a debt crisis. Um, we've had various experts kind of paint a very glum picture moving forward. And so I get it. You know, when you when you start to look at the alternatives in terms of, you know, what to what to invest in, how to do it, it's 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 not a foregone conclusion. You know, there there aren't there, there doesn't seem to be any kind of low hanging fruit. I would also say that we haven't seen inflation at these levels for quite a few years. Yeah. And when inflation, you know, we hear of reports of 9% and 10% and whichever metric you choose to believe, um, you know, at the very least, it sits around 6% as we speak. But we've also got to take into account the fact that, you know, energy costs are 400% higher. So if we take into account everything, I would, I would reasonably say that inflation probably sits at around 8 or 9%. And so I believe that puts a lot of pressure on people to to do things with their money, right? Whereas two or three years ago, when inflation was very very low, that pressure may have not it might not have been as strong as it is at the moment. That pressure can lead to wealth destruction through making the wrong decisions purely from ticking a box and saying, "I've at least I've done it. At least I've got my money working for me." But it's only working for you, you know, if it's protected preserves and stands a chance of increasing. Um, otherwise, um, what you end up doing um, is you end up investing in a reward, um, a reward free risk. 
Um, this is something that Dr. John Hussman um, articulated. He's a fund manager. Um, and he said that, you know, when you look at asset classes at the moment, you're looking at reward free risks, taking on risk for little reward. And also say about inflation that, you know, the chancellor is saying, you know, we get inflation under control and this sort of thing, but it doesn't seem to be going away. It's gone up in the Eurozone and in Germany in particular. So I'm, I'm not sure if inflation is actually really under control. And as you say, the real inflation, the food inflation and the, the energy costs are, you know, they, they've tweaked these inflation figures over the years. So I, I don't think we're out of the woods. And, you know, a lot of people are still uh, nervous about things. And, and, and it's a question of navigating your way through this this jungle of problems. And, and, and inflation, of course, is eating away at people's money. I, I know people have got hundreds of thousands in the bank where that the bank didn't even put the rate up when rates were going up. They were leaving yeah. that. They said, no, that account, we haven't changed that account. I went down with her, an old lady, and she, she, you know, I said, well, just move your money. We said, no, no, I want to keep it there. I know where it is. And, and that's the apathy that a lot of investors have. Anyway, I'll yeah. let you carry Sorry if there's a bit of noise here. There's a bit of drilling going on upstairs. I don't know what, I thought they'd finish this all. morning, but. Uh, I, I can't hear it at all. Okay, I great. It at all. Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm going to try and avoid getting into the granular detail of inflation because I could be here all day. But, you know, suffice to say, I know of lots of people that and clients that operate within the food industry. They have restaurants, they have supply chain businesses and inflation for certain foods have increased by 50 or 60 percent to the point where people that have kind of a narrow menu of things that they sell, they've gone out of business because there's no way they can pass on a 50% increase to their customers um, without going out of business. Correct. And so you're, you're correct. You know, the measure that they use for inflation is completely arbitrary. Um, but if we take into account a best case scenario and make our case based on that, then, you know, I feel like at least we're comparing, you know, the reality of the situation with a best case scenario for inflation. Okay. Um, and, you know, there's been so much stuff that's happened over the last 12 to 24 months. Of course, we saw we saw Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley Bank collapse, um, the beginning of one of the biggest um, scams and lack of liquidity um, crisis within cryptocurrency. But at the same time, we've seen, you know, share values in Credit Suisse and Metro Bank fall by 30 percent. We've seen businesses on the high street close at record pace. Yep. And so I get why it's confusing out there, because um, it, it is, you know, what does one do? I think the only real certainty in today's market is, is uncertainty. Um, and actually, you know, uncertainty is, is kind of represented in whole by, by black swan events, the unknown unknowns. And, you know, whether or not we're talking about Brexit, or COVID, or the pumping of money into the money supply as a result of COVID, and then the furlough schemes and what have you. These are all things that no one could have predicted. You know, you've got equity corrections and property corrections. You know, this within reason, people can predict, give or take a few years, because the markets are cyclical. We know that, we understand it. But these sorts of things that never happened before, you can't predict. But what we're, what we're now starting to appreciate is that we can anticipate them. 
because they're now starting to happen with increasingly with increasing frequency. We don't know what's going to happen, but we do know that over the next 18 months or so, there'll probably be another black swan. You know, if we go back, we rewind kind of a couple of years ago, um, we had Russia, we had Ukraine, then we had what's going on in the Middle East. These are all things, again, that we couldn't have really predicted. But we're now starting to anticipate that every 12 to 18 months, there's something that comes along that we couldn't have predicted. And actually, in a way, you know, um, that provides us with a degree of certainty in a very, very uncertain world. Yeah. Whenever we whenever we talk to clients, um, we we don't just talk about gold. In fact, the majority of what we talk about is the wide spectrum of alternatives available within the market. Because as I said before, Charles, I don't think it's possible to just look at one asset class in isolation. I think everything's relative. Um, and as a person, as opposed to just a company that sells physical gold, I have equities. I've invested in bonds. I've had buy-to-lets before. So in a way, I'm also an investor. And you know, if you look at if we go back and you look at 2008, you look at 1980, you look at the dot-com crash, these are times where the wealthy get a lot wealthier. And so I, I, I get how the future looks grim and uncertain, but actually it's not all bad. You know, there is huge amounts of opportunity during uncertainty and volatility. The question is knowing what that opportunity looks like and being able to quantify it in terms of timing. Because as I'm sure you can agree, mm. a great opportunity might not be so great, you know, if you apply the wrong timing. Correct. Yeah. So timing, I think, is absolutely critical. But I think, you know, as I said before, when I'm talking to my clients, we start with the alternatives. And so, you know, when we look at equities, for example, um, I see huge amounts of opportunity in the equity market in probably two to three years time. I don't wanna to get too overly technical, but what I will say with equities is that there's a there's a gentleman called Michael Berry. Um, they made a film about him. Um, the film was called um, The Big Short. And if, yeah. if anyone hasn't seen that film, I'd, I'd strongly suggest to see it because it breaks down the intricacies of the market in such simplistic language that actually you know, you'll start to think that you can understand everything. And actually, in reality, it's possible, you know, if you strip out all the jargon. Um, in this film, and it's based on real life, it's based on a true story, yeah. Michael Berry was a small minority of, um, of the market that believed that we were going to see a big crash. And as a result of that, he was, he was betting or buying insurance products but very cheap because, you know, no one else was buying them, that the market would collapse. Um, and today he has one of the largest funds within the market as a result of getting that right. The reason I mentioned that is because he has just placed 1.23 billion um, against the same thing happening, either within the debt market or the equity market. And so, you know, lots of people have opinions, lots of people have predictions, um, but I think it's quite rare that you have people that back it up with their own money. Um, and um, just because he's got it right before doesn't mean that he's going to get it right again. But, you know, he's put down 1.23 billion 
that, you know, he thinks this is going to happen. And actually, because of his reputation, a lot of people are now starting to listen to what, you know, he, he says. Um, but it's not just that, you know, if you if you if you're looking at equities, the the way in which you value a company, one of the metrics is the price to earnings, which is the price of a share relative to a company's earnings or future earnings. And as 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 society has advanced and technology has become more sophisticated, the gap between the value of a company and how much it earns has become really, really wide. For some people, you know, if you were to talk to a stockbroker, you know, 50 years ago, it would be completely absurd to them how you could have a company um, whose share price uh, was really high, um, but actually the company made no money, right? It's all based on future earnings. You know, so, you know, when Amazon first came out, it wasn't making making any money, but the share price was high based on future potential earnings. And so the problem, the problem... The reason I'm mentioning that is that when you see a huge disconnect between the value of a share and its earnings, what you face is the potential for a market crash. Whenever we've seen the S&P 500 breach 30 times price to earnings over the last 75 years, we've seen a market crash from anywhere in between 20% to 50%. This has happened on five occasions. On every single one of those occasions, um, the market breached 30. At the moment, we're at 33. And this is so, what a lot of people call a PE ratio, which for some companies is, is, is very high. It's an enormous PE ratio, whereas the old fashioned brokers might say, well, a PE ratio of 10 to 20 is good. But some of these companies that you see in the, the top companies have huge PE ratios at 30, 40, 50. A hundred percent. And actually the 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 global median is 15. So right now we're more than twice the global median. So if you were to project, if you were to use those stats and you were to project, um, you know, where you would be with the S&P 500, if you were to invest today for the next 10 years, um, it, look, it, it's, it gives a figure of around minus 4.2%. If you take into account the adjusted um cyclical inflation figures anyway i don't want to get i don't want to get too technical but what i wanted to do was just back up why i believe that equities will be you know an unbelievable opportunity but i think that if you were to jump if you were to jump in right now because you think there may well be a deal you know all things are relative i believe that there may well be a lot more opportunity in two or three years time when things have really bottled out you think it would take that long before things bottom out, even if there were a, a crash this year? I don't know. I think, you know, timing is really difficult because the globalization of information has become so accessible mm. that I believe that these sorts of trends are likely to happen a lot quicker than they than they ever have done. Okay. You know, people are able to act and react a lot quicker than they would have done, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. So it, it depends, you know, when, when, when you're looking at the debt market, which is highly relevant to bonds, interest rates have gone up. People are, as a result, really worried about their um, their mortgage payments, but that hasn't yet affected everyone. And so it might not affect people probably for another two or three years when they're coming off their fixed rate products. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so that for me, that's the reason why it may well be slightly prolonged just because people feel it at different pinch points. But if we talk about, you know, if we're talking about bonds, because bonds right now, they're paying more than they were a few years ago. And so they, they have to be an obvious contender. You know, some would see putting money into government bonds as a low risk strategy, um, lower return um, if you're putting it um, within uh, a guilt or a government institution. Um, but you're locking it up. And, you know, if you are earning kind of four or five percent, you're locking up your money into a guaranteed loss to inflation product. And so if we are motivated to come across that opportunity, it might be a property, it might be um, an equity, it might be, you know, crypto, or it might be something that you hadn't even anticipated. Having your money in a fixed term bond will, will remove some of that agility. You know, you, you're not going to be able to act quickly. But you know, the 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 other side of things is that, you know, putting it in a government bond may well be relatively safer than putting it in a corporate bond. Now, corporate bonds, the way we see it is they're paying a lot more, but they're paying more because they reflect a lot more risk. Uh, risk. And, you know, the, the worry for me with corporate bonds is that as interest rates have increased to its peak, They've now started to they've now started to plateau. Um, the cost of a company's debt has increased. So if we see companies like, um, for example, Pizza Express, Domino's, they want to raise money on the bond market. They're having to pay as of maybe last year, um, maybe seven percent in order to attract investors um, to invest in, in in one of these companies. But the cost, because the cost of that debt is so high and because people are now spending a lot less money because they're worried about inflation and there needs to be some sort of a compromise, the money that these businesses are taking in in terms of spend is decreasing. But their overheads are increasing because the cost of debt is increasing. And this, therefore, affects profit. And so yeah. looking at it in really simplistic terms, it puts companies in a far more precarious position than we've seen them in, you know, for you know decades, because of you know the the, the margin the, the, the margins between how much they're making and and what their outgoings are. Yeah, the debt has brought down companies that have been trading very well. You, you, your photo showed Woolworths. I, mean, I think I believe Woolworths was a had a good trading record, but it was brought down by its debt. And we see Evergrande, this large Chinese property company defaulting on on bonds on their bond uh commitments so yeah i, I mean i i mean your money is tied up in a bond but you can sell a bond you can sell it on but the value of that bond can go up or down so it's not purely risk-free in that respect um but i think a lot of people would not understand bonds and would probably not buy bonds directly but we know that pension funds use them because there's there's a guarantee there it locks in a guarantee to, to meet their commitments but it's a very I think in a lot of people's minds, it's a bit of a grey area, but it it does. I, I think, as you know, it will predict what may be happening in the market with with the bond rates and and how bonds are performing. Yeah, I agree. Um, I also agree that it's it's become a complicated area of the market where you know there are more people that see the risk than they do the reward. Right. And so, you know, again, if we're looking at other alternatives within the market, one may well consider that 
you know, the banks right now are paying more than they have done over the last 10 years in, in you know, with some savings accounts, depending on who they are, you know, some of them are paying up to 4%. Yeah. Um, and so I believe you've got more flexibility with a savings account than you do a bond because, you, you know, there's nothing to sell. Effectively, you can just take your money out of the bank. And so you have got more flexibility. I would say that the trade-off, though, is that you're probably you're going to get less interest with a savings account than you would do a bond. So your 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 loss to inflation is higher. But the other thing that would be remiss of me not to mention, and it's it's the I would say it's the number one motivator at the moment for people wanting to take money out of the bank, is counterparty risk, i.e., the risk that banks may well fail. And that might seem really distant or arbitrary or abstract, but we've seen it before. You know, we saw it with Northern Rock. We saw we saw it with Lehman Brothers and Meredith Whitney, who predicted the crash back in 2008. um, She believes that we are going to see a considerable consolidation within the banking industry. When she uses the word consolidation, what I hear is we're going to see a lot we're going to we're, we're going to end up with a lot less banks than we see at the moment which means that some of them are going to disappear um and maybe that's a good thing you know i'm not going to comment either way but we've seen share price in metro drop by 30% we've seen share share price in credit swiss also um fall considerably and so you know moving back to opportunities would it be an opportunity to buy a bank stock today possibly you know, would the market continue to fall? Likely. Would there be opportunity in a year or two years time? In my opinion, highly likely. Um, And so there's opportunity there. But at the same time, when people are putting money into a bank, and they know that they're not covered for anything beyond 85,000, if that bank goes under, you you have to say goodbye to anything that you leave with them over and above the 85,000. And this this goes back to the saying before, when I said this kind of amounts to nothing more than a reward-free risk. You're risking everything for no reward. You're losing to inflation, but yet you've got counterparty risk. And so this this is a really important factor. Um, we've also got clients that are sceptical as to whether or not the money um, under 85,000 would be covered if we saw a situation where more than two or three banks were to collapse. Let's face it, the, the deposit protection scheme is academic at best. We hope it will never be tested um, because we you know, we know that in order for the, the free market economy um, to survive, it needs to have confidence. And so without a guarantee, no one's going to put money in banks. And if no one puts money in banks, then the system collapses. And so they have to say that it's guaranteed or covered because without it, there wouldn't be a system. Whether or not whether or not that would step in to cover you is another issue. But moreover, you know, removing the speculation because one will never know and hopefully we'll never find out. What I can say, what, what I think is probably more realistic is in, in a situation where you've got money in a high street bank and a bank unfortunately goes under, we don't know how long it's going to take for us to be able to access that money. It, it may well be four weeks. It might be four months. It might be eight months. And the problem with that is that we've all got things that we need to pay for. 
right? We've got, we've got to pay for mortgages. We have to pay for survival and, and living. And, you know, that, that kind of rises this, that kind of raises the potential of a significant cash flow issue within people's kind of daily lives. You know, that, you know, when, you, when you've got a cash flow issue with business, you know, they may well be making lots and lots of money, but if their cash flow is disaligned, they can go bankrupt just because it's not coming in um, quick enough for them to pay out um, their their obligations. Yeah, so think, you know that that's a consideration. Yeah, I think people realise most people know that if everybody went to the bank and uh, took their money out, that the bank haven't got it. They've lent that money out, and you know when you deposit money with a bank, you're you're an unsecured creditor, um, and we've seen more than one bank go down in America. And, and quite a few banks are at risk at the moment from the, the amount of commercial loans that they've got on things like offices, which are unoccupied, and you've got large property companies in trouble. So there, there, are, there are some risks with banks. But what, what we don't know is if, if there was a run on banks and a few of them went down, would the government rather than bail out these banks, would they bail in? And would you end up with maybe shares in those banks rather than cash? That, that's, that's an unknown factor. But as you said, it's it's something that you hope you never use, like a nuclear deterrent. You hope that they never have to, to do this. But I would say that when banks have got into trouble in the UK, they've usually been taken over by another bank. Uh, so we, we haven't had a situation, well, as far as in my memory, where a bank has literally gone under and people have lost all their money. So hopefully the, there'll be more of a, a consolidation, as you said, of, of, the, of the banks in, in, into fewer banks and, and people won't lose all of their savings. But you should be aware that you're only covered up to £85,000 and you, you should spread your money around. That would be the, the normal advice. Yeah. And I would also say, you know, <clears throat> look, these risks are minimised if you're keeping money in banks short term. That risk risk generally is minimised, you know, if, if you're keeping money in a bank short term. And you're always going to have to have money in bank accounts to pay, you know, overheads, obligations and commitments. Um, um, so moving on to um, crypto, which is um, an asset class that I would say is not for the faint hearted. Um, a lot of people have speculated within cryptocurrency, um, far more people than I would say actually understand it. Um, I've seen people that have made money. I've seen a lot more people that have lost a lot of money. And so cryptocurrency, in terms of blockchain, unbelievable technology, certainly here for the long term. Um, although I don't believe cryptocurrency should be looked at as a store of wealth um, as it was first communicated, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Just because you haven't got that track record, the volatility is huge. You know, we've seen situations where people have lost 80 or 90 percent, you know, overnight um, we've also seen people that have gone from 100% down to zero. Um, you know, our clients, if they're deciding to take a risk with cryptocurrency, it's more a question of how much can I afford to lose? And they'll spread that across, you know, various different coins. I, I wouldn't say that's a bad idea at all, but I think you need to go in with your eyes open, manage your own expectations and understand that um, there's a reasonable chance of loss. There's a minimal chance of huge growth. The chance is there far more than winning the lottery. But, you know, to some extent, it is a punt. It's not only people that are invested in cryptocurrencies. It's funds and hedge funds. That, and, and they've launched an ETF in America. They've approved an ETF for cryptocurrency. And if you talk to a cryptocurrency buff, they, they are 
100% convinced that this is the thing, that this is going to go up to hundreds of thousands, the Bitcoin is going to go up to hundreds of thousands, if not millions, and that the rest of the currencies are going to collapse and it's all doom and gloom. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't know enough about it to invest. I personally rather have a gold coin in my hand than a, than a notional Bitcoin. Is it a currency? Even you know, you, Can you really use that as a currency? I, I don't think so. Look, I, I, I understand that crypto is in a way a currency um, and it's used as one. I just see that you hear of a lot of these success stories where people have made kind of, you know, 30,000%. But do they ever get out at the right time? No, for two reasons. First of all, you know, once you've started to find a really quick and easy way to make money, you don't stop doing it until you end up losing that money. And number two, it becomes really difficult to exit the market when you want to exit the market because it's an immature market. You know, there's not a huge amount of track record. And so yeah. what, one has to look at it with, with their eyes open. You know, I think that the, the issue with cryptocurrency is that it's grabbed so much media attention that you get people that think, I earn £3,000 a month. I've, I've, I've heard and I've read stories of people basically becoming multi-millionaires mm. from putting in as little as a couple of thousand pounds into coins. And actually, this is going to answer all my dreams and prayers. And you get people that put in that money into crypto and, you know, they could lose 80% overnight. Could go up by 100%, but it can also drop by 100% too. Yeah, a lot of it's FOMO, isn't it? They're, they're worried about losing out and... Um, but it could be another South Sea bubble or a, the, the Dutch tulip bubble. I, we don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but um, anyway, you've covered crypto. I think you've given a good uh, uh, explanation of crypto. Yeah. And the other thing as well, I saw that I saw a really great documentary the other day um, about cryptocurrency, and it said that actually um, over the last five years or so, 75% of cryptocurrencies that were um, that were um, ICO'd were scams. Wow. And so, you know, they are created in, you know, really um, disguised ways where it's almost, you know, impossible to determine if something is real or, or if it's not. Um, you know, SVB um, was a, a big example of that. The documentary that I saw the other day was one called Bitcond, um, right. where... Okay the market really believed that they were investing in this technology within cryptocurrency. And because it's so unregulated, it turned out that actually the technology didn't exist. Um, the people and the founders didn't really have any background and didn't have the background they said they had. And actually the whole thing was just smokes and mirrors. And, you know, when that was discovered, basically everything went to zero and the founders ended up in jail, but people lost their livelihoods. Yeah. Um, anyway, we move on. Um, property is a really is an interesting one because this is one asset class that I, I really do get behind. Um, property is fungible. Um, it's income generating. Um, it provokes emotion. You know, we love the look of property. You know, if we're buying one for ourselves, you know, one can fall in love with it. And so property, in my opinion, will never fall to zero. It's a tangible asset class. It's yes. worth its cost in bricks and mortar. Um, but, you know, there's a time and there's a place, you know, during the 1980s, you know, the wealthy became very wealthy 
um, from acquiring property that people were selling because, you know, those people that were selling could not afford to live in those properties anymore. Yeah, mortgages went, I remember when mortgages were 16%. Yes. Right. 16%, 17%. Back yeah. then, I think the difference between then and now is that people have a lot higher debt. They have a lot more debt right. in relation yeah. to their income. And so I guess it's just a question of, you know, what your mortgage payments were and what they will be. And Correct. so a 400% increase in anything is eye-watering. People will either react to that when it happens. And if they do, they'll end up on the back foot because they're going to have to undersell their property to get funding quick enough to be able to avoid foreclosure and, you know, other um, um, other um, negative implications. Um, or people will plan for it. But either way, I can't see a situation where people aren't making decisions to either downsize, move property, um, reduce debt um, in order to reduce their exposure to an increase in debt. And the only way they could do that is pay down mortgage, which I think is just really difficult to do um, unless you sell your property. Um, but what that does mean is that I believe there's a, a lot of opportunity in the property market. If one can be patient enough to wait to pick up those opportunities, I believe that real, you know, real value um, can be acquired. Um, and I think it's a question of, you know, I was saying this the other day to to um, to to one of one of my clients. Um, value is is you know, price is what you pay for a property. And, and value is what you get. The wealthy invest based on value, not based on price. And so they're influenced very, very differently um, when looking at asset classes. You know, everyday people that are pressurized by inflation to do something, almost anything, they end up buying and mistiming opportunities, which then creates, you know, wealth destruction. Whereas the wealthy can sit there patiently bide their time, wait for those opportunities, um, because you know they're not they're not influenced by the same pressures. Yes. Thank you for listening to Money Tips. For more tips and information, visit moneytipsdaily.com. The information given in this podcast is for your entertainment and should not be construed as financial advice. As always, take independent financial advice before making any investment decisions. 